episode number 45, Alan Brody. All right, cut to edge of stage. Great. All right, color frost. Check. One, two, three. Check. Stand by, please. to half. Heads out. Letting cues one through ten. Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz, and this time I have an interview with lighting designer and uh, director now, Alan Brody, from the Shaw Festival, recorded in May of 2017. Alan and I first met while I was an assistant at the Shaw in 1997, but I quickly realized that this was not the first time I had encountered him. Well, a crew member in Kitchener, Ontario at the Centre in the Square in 1991 for the Phantom of the Opera Tour, I noticed one of the associate LDs running around with a piece of double R59 to focus lights. He was uh, sort of holding it up to his eyes and staring at the lights. Now, I had not seen this technique before, and I was intrigued. Uh, I was used to staring into the barrel of a lamp to find the source and uh, centered on my head, but it had never occurred to me, when I was young, that I could use a double indigo to preserve my sight while squinting at the focus charts. I know, I was a noob. Uh, I was also sure that I wanted to be just like him. Now, Alan and I talk about that tour and the rest of his life as a Vancouver-based designer and his recent return to graduate school to train as a director in the next couple of hours. If you want to follow along and with our discussion with visuals and background, uh, be sure to check out the show notes with links to Alan's work and other moments in theatre history. Also, please consider supporting the title block on patreon.com. Uh, I don't get paid, but I do have, have to cover costs of, a, you know, web hosting, recording equipment, and now travel. So your help to continue capturing the history and present state of Canadian theatre design would be appreciated. Thanks again to those who already support it. Click the Patreon button at thetitleblock.com or search for us on your Patreon page. Now here is my interview with lighting designer Alan Brody. Uh, since 1989, Alan Brody has been designing lights and sets across the country, uh, including in the U.S., over in Europe. Uh, and uh, early in his career, he started on The Phantom of the Opera, which we will start, uh, we will talk about a bit later. But uh, in the meantime, Alan Brody, thank you and welcome to the title block. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. We met, first met in 1997, which was 20 years ago. Oh, Lord. Yes, I know. Uh, it, it was a long time ago. And uh, I'm so glad to have you here because I've been wanting to talk to you for a wow. while. It's great. I'm thrilled to do it. And uh, you are Vancouver-based. That's right. Where were you born? I was born in Vancouver. In Vancouver. Uh, I grew up in Terrace, BC, a small logging town up in the northern half of the province. Mm-hmm. And then moved back down to Vancouver to go to, to do theater studies at UBC after I finished high school. And I've lived there ever since. And what uh, made you decide to go down to like to study theater after high school? Did you do theater in high school? I did high school uh, high school theater. Yeah, and uh, was I, I think I, you know, like so many people that get into this business, um, you know, you start on the stage. It seems like that's the case. So, um, but actually, I, I my first exposure and experience of of involvement in the arts was in music. Actually, um, I had two parents who my parents were both musicians. Mm-hmm. And so it started, um, you know, studying piano and, and there was a very, very active uh, music festival, annual music festival up in that region. Mm-hmm. 
And so for years and years, I participated first in, you know, doing piano and singing with my mom's choirs and in, then in high school band competition and, and also in what, what they call in, in the festivals, uh, speech arts right. or elocution, right. I guess. Right. Yeah. And so that was uh, what first got me onto the stage. Um, and then in junior high, uh, I took uh, theater arts, mm -hmm. which involved uh, being in a couple plays. Mm -hmm. And um, in grade 11, uh, I took stagecraft. It was one of the electives offered. And this is in a small town of about 11,000 people. Yeah. But the what what we had going for us was that the local community theater, which is about a 700-seater, was managed by the school district. And so, and it was across the parking lot from the high school. And so there was this natural place for us to practice hands-on stagecraft. And so I took stagecraft in grade 11, and it was, it was a bit of a revelation. Um, I was fortunate to have the insight that... Um, that it was a good, really good fit for me. It, mm. it, it was satisfying both technically and creatively. And those were, you know, two, uh, sort of the two aspects of my, of my temperament, I guess, my creative temperament. And, um, I, I don't know what possessed me to think that I should go to university and study to be a lighting designer. It wasn't like I had lighting designer, uh, mentors as, as a kid in grade 11. Mm. Um, I, 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 I didn't even look very long at what school I should go to. Um, my, my high school drama teacher, uh, brought my attention to, um, Niagara college, mm -hmm. which at the time was uh, still in business. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that uh, and, uh, I'd applied to UBC, um, was accepted at UBC. I don't know if I'd be accepted at UBC today, but at the time, you know, we're talking the mid eighties, um, uh, but I was a, I was pretty young, like I was seventeen when I finished high school, and I was a young seventeen year old. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was pretty sheltered and grew up in a small town, and and I just wasn't ready to move across the country to a province that I'd never been to, to a school that I knew nothing about. And by going to UBC, I was able to live with um, with family members for the first couple years of my of my time there, yeah. and then when I sort of felt a bit more adult, I was able to spread my wings a bit more. So. Um, uh, yeah, UBC. So I did a BFA in theater studies, sort of, you know, you, you didn't have to declare a major or anything like that, but it was clear that lighting was what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, Bonnie Beecher was in my class for a year at UBC <laughs> and then she flew the coop, um, for Banff and then, uh, Halifax. Um, and, uh, I think that it would have been an interesting challenge if we'd both stayed in the program together. There wasn't a lot of lighting to go around. Yeah. Uh, at that time, undergrads weren't designing any main stage shows at yeah. UBC. So it was really, um, studio stuff to do. Right. And, um, uh, so I think if there'd been two wannabe lighting designers in the program at the same time, there would have been some bumping of elbows. So yeah. it was probably better for, for, well, I think she was drawn to something else at the time and it was probably better for, for me in terms of just getting a bunch of practice in that I didn't have somebody else that wanted the work as well. Yeah. It is kind of interesting that uh, in many cases when I talk to people, they've not that the, the industry is not that big and every yeah. year there are hundreds of people graduating from I these know. programs. And despite that, you know, all the people who are, 
all the people who are still working after 30, 20, 20 or 30 yeah. years in the business say, yeah. oh, I was at school with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so yeah. and so-and-so, all five or ten big names. Right. Uh, and the fact that Bonnie Beecher yeah, I know. and you yeah. are in the same class together the same UBC, class at UBC. It's kind of crazy, right? It is, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's something else must be going on. Like a, there's a generational thing or maybe it's hindsight. Who knows? Yeah, but. it's interesting. Um, there's, it's interesting for me, too, that the region of northern BC that I came from also produced a number of people that still work in the business. Yeah. So um, Adrian Muir is a lighting designer based in Vancouver, and he grew up in Kitimat. Um, Crystal Pite uh, lived in Terrace when she was a young girl. Um, Kim Collier was from Kitimat. She's from the electric company. Uh, my friend and agent Ian Arnold. He was my best friend in high in from junior high school. And, and so it's interesting. You know, someone once said, "Oh, there must be something in the water in that area." You know, like there's that's a you know like Crystal and Kim alone to have come out of that same valley in northern BC. Yeah. Like that's pretty. Like that. Those are two powerhouse theater makers you know so it's interesting i had the same experience in kitchener but uh, there was a big performing arts school that happened in the late 80s and there's a bunch of people from musical theater and dance that came out of that that are still around today yeah uh and we had the same kind of question in fact i went when i went to ryerson there were um to ryerson 91 and there were one two three four five of us that came from that program in Mm -hmm. that year or, or spread over two years at ryerson so yeah i think there's like People find each other as well. Sure. And, you know, there's got to be, I mean, maybe randomness is just clumpy, but there's got to be something else yeah. going on. But there's, there's so many other factors in terms of whether people have longevity or not. Yeah. Like there's so many variables in terms of who sticks around, you know, like there's, like you say, there's so many people coming out of school now mm-hmm. that there's not enough work for them all. So there's some natural attrition that has to take place in order to keep the ecosystem in balance, yeah. you know, yeah. and it took 10 years of working before I felt at all confident that I could make the bills and not uh, have to cash in my RSP right. in six months time to pay the rent, you know, and lots of people aren't willing to wait for 10 years to discover whether their chosen field is going to work out for them or not. So, exactly. yeah. especially these days. Mm-hmm. So you go to UBC. Yeah. Uh, you didn't, you have an MFA, but you didn't pursue that right away. That seems no. to be a bit of a Western, because there's programs at UBC, yep. UVic, yeah. and uh, U of A, U of C. Yeah. Um, you know, I always wanted, I was always interested in doing more school. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've said that um, I wasn't a great university student. Mm-hmm. I was a fantastic theater student. Right. Like, I lived and breathed it for four years, but... I skated by on the academic side, but you know, I always knew I had that capacity. I'd been a good student in high school, but I hadn't really learned how to work hard academically. And it seemed like working hard on my theater work was more important than learning how to write good papers as an undergrad. But I also felt, I was also interested in going back to school and um, I was interested in teaching, but I also thought I don't want to be, and no slight against those people who do their BFA and then do their MFA and then get a teaching gig, like good for you. But I wanted to be, if I was going to be a teacher, I wanted to be a teacher who brought experience to the table. And so I thought, I just need to get out and build a career. And maybe one day I'll get to go back to school. Uh, and maybe one day I'll get to teach, but not not yet. Yeah. So And now it's been almost 30 years since I finished at UBC, you know. And now I, I may be too old to get a teaching job. <laughs> We'll really? see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, just starting to explore that uh, possibility. Mm-hmm. But mm. and so 
Did you start working as an LD right away? Did you do other stagecraft work? Well, or? it's funny. Um, you know, I think that people from away from Vancouver would say, oh, Vancouver's a really closed shop. And I certainly experienced that to some degree. Um, I think if you compare Vancouver in 1990 to the Vancouver of today, like there are so many companies in Vancouver, you could work a show every two weeks in Vancouver if you didn't care to get paid. Um, Now, if you're just an emerging lighting designer, so there's tons of opportunity today for the emerging designer to get get practice and exposure. in 1990, there were far fewer companies. The whole equity co-op thing was just kind of starting to happen out west, and um, and I I certainly felt like I could have should have been working more than I was as a as a designer. Mm-hmm. So very soon after graduating UBC, uh, I went to work for Doug Welch, who's um, who's was a longstanding set and lighting designer in Vancouver who was transitioning into being a theater consultant. Mm-hmm. And so, but he still had, uh, an act a vibrant, uh, theater practice. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had, as I was coming out of school, I had approached Catherine Shaw at studio 58. She's the artistic director there about working for her. I had approached Doug Welch. I'd invited them to come to UBC and see my last show there. We'd done a production of Zastrazzi at UBC and it was a stylish production. And, it, you know, my work, was was really well received, and I'd approached Doug, and I don't even know if he saw the show, but uh, he, I approached him about work, and he said, "Well, you know, why don't you come on by, and and um, I've got a I've got a project on the go, and I could use some help." And he was starting to feel pulled in a few different directions with the, the theater consulting, and also doing design uh, for events and um, installations and that kind of stuff, and so um, for. Uh, for quite a while, I worked in his studio, um, assisting him on uh, his own work. Mm-hmm. And it was often it was lighting. So I did a job for him where uh, he would drop me in. He would have done the, the, the rough of the plot. And then I would have done the final of the plot. And this was in the day of hand drafting. So and maybe some light right. Mm-hmm. So I would handle that side. I'd go in, supervise the hang and the focus, and then Doug would drop in and build the cues. Mm-hmm. And I did that for him on lots of shows. Yeah. Um, I want to say I did that, it probably my CV probably says how long that went on for, probably about five years mm-hmm. uh, to varying degrees. But he kept me pretty employed for a while, right. which is great. Um, I also uh, picked up work, uh, occasional work as an assistant lighting designer for Vancouver Opera. Mm-hmm. Um, and which, which was great and was kind of a revelation. Like I remember as a student, we took a field trip down to the Queen Elizabeth theater when Vancouver opera was loading in the cunning little vixen. Mm -hmm. And it was at a time when VOA was importing their shows from the Welsh national opera or the, uh, it's probably not the Welsh national opera, but anyway, opera company in Wales. And and they were beautiful, gorgeous sets, and very often quite postmodern. And um, and the scale of that into the three thousand seater, and it just kind of blew my socks off, you know. And um, and that experience of sitting, Bonnie Beecher has joined oh. us. <laughs> she's re- she's found us outside the window. It's very funny. Lucky she'll do a do a little dance for us. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that's hilarious Via Vancouver, Vancouver Opera, Opera. Yeah. Um, and I felt like working on a show 
with music at the heart of it, I was like, oh, this is the right place for me. You know, I'd grown up being involved in music. And for a little while, I thought maybe I wanted to be a musician. Mm-hmm. And, then I, and then in Vancouver, um, th- there was no lighting for a young lighting designer doing opera. There were no, like, sort of small ad hoc yeah. opera companies. Um, the dance scene was very, very closed shop. Yeah. You know, like, I would approach a company like, no, thank you. We have our lighting designer. Right. You know, and I got that over and over and over again, not just with dance companies, who all use the same lighting designer. Um, um, So theater was what I started doing when there were opportunities because that's where the opportunities lay. But when I started doing working in opera and then much later in dance, if that felt like the perfect place for me because of my, my training and my background in music, it just felt like such a natural place to live, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, lighting shows with music at the heart. So um, I've been, you know, really, really happy that over my career, it's expanded to include, you know, certainly musicals every year and most years an opera or two as well. And, um, less so dance. It's funny. Um, I'm sort of jumping around here, but, um, I didn't, I didn't toil in the trenches doing dance the way someone like Kevin did, you know, traveling across the country and working for small companies. Um, I did one dance job in Vancouver for a small company called Movent. Great show. And then I did three seasons of doing dance, the dance, lighting the dance training program at Banff. Mm-hmm. We should talk about Banff maybe too, because oh, yeah. that's a common theme. Yeah. Um, and then I went to the National Ballet of Canada and did a piece for Crystal Pite. Like I didn't, I kind of just cut right to the, to, for, to the front of the line, you know? And so I, ne- I never did that toiling away yeah. in the trenches of dance. And I'm, pretty I'm okay with that I mean it would have been great to do but I'm also happy to work for PNB in Seattle and like I, I did the piece that I did for Crystal at the National has has gone on to a quite an international life so it's played Seattle um, we took it to Glasgow last summer it's going to Zurich next next spring um, and then the piece that I did for Crystal at Netherlands Dance Theatre called Plot Point I did that in 2009 or so Pacific Northwest Ballet is doing it this fall. This fall, so I, I've been really lucky to just get to go straight to the crystal pipes of the world. Yeah. You know, it certainly is an advantage of doing dance as well because unlike theater, it gets done like once that piece is in the uh, once that piece is solidified as a as an important piece. Now it gets done again and again and again and again. Yeah. And even I mean, it, you don't have to. A lot of times you don't have to have a giant set waiting in storage. and That's right. In the case of Emergence, it's a backdrop, you know, and yeah. some costumes. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, you, now we're talking about Banff, but how, yeah. how long were you freelancing before you got to Banff? You went so, to Banff in 92. So, yeah. So what happened was when I was at UBC, uh, I applied to go to the Banff Center a couple summers in a row. Yeah. And this was at a time when the Banff Center it felt to me like they had a real bias against people coming out of universities. They saw themselves as a conservatory and they were my, my, what I observed was that they weren't plucking people out of universities Mm -hmm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. Maybe they just didn't think I was an interesting candidate to them. I applied twice as a student. They were not interested. I did other stuff. So I was like, "Mm, screw Banff. I don't need to go to Banff. But then working for Doug Welch in 92, I went there to do a production of Ubu the Musical. Mm-hmm. 
And at the end of the job, um, Tom Montvilla, who was then the like the manager of the, of the program, approached me and said, do you want to come back later this summer and assist Kevin Lamott on um, Le Tragedie de Carmen, the Peter Brook musical, or um, the Peter Brook version of Carmen? Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I could do that. And so that's where I met Kevin. Right. And so I assisted Kevin on that production. I mean, with me, the lines are really straight and yeah. clear, yeah. you know, like worked for Doug Welch, which took me to Banff, met Kevin, assisted him on a show at ATP that later that year. Yeah. And the next year I was, ast- actually, that's not quite true. It took us, it was 96 when I first came to assist here, but Kevin and I had stayed in touch over the years. Yeah. Um, but certainly Banff served as a, as a good springboard to, uh, to meeting Kevin, who's proven to be, you know, along with Morris Panich, yeah. as prob- Kevin's probably proven to be one of the sort of most central um, people in my career, yeah. you know, yeah. in terms of what knowing him has, has led to, both in terms of uh, aspiring to the kind of work that he does and but also, you know, getting a foot in the door at the Shaw Festival as well. And, and Phantom also was happening around that time as well. Yeah. Um, I started, so, and that line is quite clear also. I assisted Rob Bosworth, who was then a very busy lighting designer uh, around the country and associate designer. He was then associate designer for the Phantom Tour. Right. And uh, he wanted to hire me as his assistant on the first leg of the tour in Ottawa, but Livevent said, no, no, we really want you to hire someone from Toronto. So we hired this guy from Toronto. The show then came to Vancouver. And this was, I mean, this was in the, the gravy train days, yes. right? So yes. I got hired as the local assistant. <laughs> and literally, I was like the photocopy guy and the keep the candy jar full guy. Because this was when Ruthie Mitchell was still dropping in on the show. And you had to have a candy jar on the table to kind of, you know... Um, sweeten the, you know, the, the, the conversation going on at the production table. Right. Um, things went really well for me in Vancouver. And what I observed was that the guy who was the first assistant uh, just didn't... I ended up doing a bunch of his work. Right. And then when the show moved to Montreal, I moved with it as the first assistant. Mm-hmm. And then Rob said, I'm leaving the business I'm going to work for IBM as a computer guy. And Livent offered me a provisional position on the next stop of the tour as the associate LD, which was back to Ottawa, I think. And then for the next four years, I toured across Canada twice. And we went to Alaska, Singapore, Hong Kong, Hawaii twice. And I did that job as the associate LD right uh, right through till 95 when it finally closed in Vancouver for the third time, I think. Yeah, it's crazy. So and tell me about the tour. So yeah, like, what was it like? This is a giant show. It was. Like, it was a the show for well. It was a full yeah. scale sit down production of Phantom that would take two weeks from the start of load in to opening. Right. I mean, they do that show. The bus and trucks of Phantom now probably perform on the end of day two. Yeah. But we had a full show deck. Yeah. We had a chandelier yeah. that f- flew and crashed. We had um, in the, the house in like the house from the middle of the house. From the middle yeah, of the house, yeah. we were like you know the the crew would go in with and they would cut out steel. They would add steel. Um, I remember when we went to uh, the theater in Anchorage. Um, the proscenium was this beautiful faceted sort of many planed, um, semi almost semicircular um, 
sculptural thing. And the phantom pros is this giant square thing. And so like, with the saws all just like hacking away all of this metal, this beautiful metal. But um, people, you know, that was still, that was still the heyday, the live end heyday of, um, that was before um, Showboat or Ragtime. Um, Joseph was their other big uh, moneymaker then. And people wanted to see the full version of the show. And so once every three or four months, I would fly to another town. We, I, so we, I just did the jumps. So I didn't, I wasn't there for the run, obviously. I'd fly in, we'd focus the show, and then uh, we would tune it for that venue and open it and it would run for three or four months. And there was a huge appetite for that production. And, you know, our, our production starred Jeff Hislop for, for a while, who's a Canadian talent. And, um, and it must've been a license for them to print money, but they were spending a lot of money too. You know, like, um, it had a big road crew. I had an assistant who was responsible for follow spots. And so over the years, um, Adrian Muir worked with me on that for quite a while. Yeah. And then toward the very end, I think Heidi, then Heidi Lindgren, now Heidi McDonald, uh, she came on as my assistant as well. Um, you know, when I got that job, I'd never been outside of BC right. <laughs> and, and I got that job because of my connection with Rob Bosworth through Vancouver opera. Right. So again, a very straight line, yeah. you know? And so for five years, um, I trooped phantom around, uh, Canada mostly, but also to some th- Southeast Asian. So Garth Drabinsky had the rights to the non-contiguous states, right. which is why we went to Alaska and Hawaii yeah. as well. It was fantastic. Yeah. I was seeing the world. You know, I was in my late twenties, and um, I guess ninety-five. Yeah, I, so yeah, that's right, late twenties, and um, I was meeting all of these, and it was all Canadians in the cast. Yeah. I was meeting this, you know, all these fantastically talented performers, most, most from Toronto, but you know, from across the country, great crews who had been sort of the best, the best crew people that had been pulled from theaters across the country. And so for five years, I worked on that show at a scale that I wouldn't work at on my own shows for another, another five years after that. Yeah, I recall it, like, I don't think that people today would understand the kind of scale unless they were there. Like, there was, yeah. I, I, um, I worked on it at the Center in the Square. Yeah. Uh, I, I came back, I was in theater school at Ryerson, and I left for a week and a half to do the install. Because mm-hmm. I thought, this is way more important for me than going to my rigging class. Because yeah. we were installing, uh, we were installing automatic winches. Yeah. And this was a giant touring house. Like the stage is sixty by eighty. Yeah. The grid is ninety feet. Yeah. Like we were, and we were adding line sets to accommodate. Yeah. It. And you know, when we went to Regina, there wasn't enough counterweight in the town yes. to rig the show. And so, you know, a truck full of uh, counterweight from Toronto set out for Regina right. in order to finish rigging rigging the show. It was huge. There were six follow spots, uh, which was more spots. You know, like a Vancouver Opera show would have two spots. Yeah. Um, you know, most theater shows, except for at Shaw and Stratford, they, you just don't get spots yeah. or you have to trade off something very expensive in order to get right. a spot or two, yeah. you know? Um, but I was, it also, it also was an inspiration for a long time, that show. Um, Andy Bridges lighting was so sophisticated and sumptuous. Uh, Maria Bjornsson's sets on that show are just out of this world. And so for years, that show inspired 
many aspects of my own work. Mm-hmm. And whether it challenged me to use colors that that I hadn't used before or think of, you know, uh, compositional things in a new way or um, uh, it just, it, it fed into my own work in, in a really uh, impactful way for a long time. So that was a tremendous opportunity. Some years later, I went on to assist on another live event show. Uh, we did Sunset Boulevard in Toronto and I was hired as the local assistant uh, and so my job was to work with the Moving Lights programmer on documenting the movers. And so Phantom was a totally analog. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the dimming was DMX dimming, yeah. but our color changers were semaphore color changers yeah, yeah, yeah. that were driven off of, yeah. you know, there's like two Soka lines running out of the right. booth yeah. from this analog controller where you preset the next semaphore move. Yeah. And then there was a, a go trigger that would come off the lighting board. Yeah. It was on an LP 90. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean it, that I was listening to Vivian Leone interviewed on the in one podcast. Yeah. And she talked about that show and how, how well it stood up for so many years mm-hmm. that you didn't need moving lights and it didn't need LEDs and it, it just, it worked perfectly well as a, an old school, old style lighting design. I mean, I say old style. I mean, I remember reading about it in theater craft in 1990, yeah. never thinking for a second I'd go to work on it, you know, um, that, that show. And it gave me a confidence working in big houses working with a big IA crew, dealing with um, a producer who had, who was very demanding, you know, we, we, Garth was there all the time. There was no out of town, out of sight, out of mind, you know, he was a very hands-on producer of that show. And so I, I was a very, you know, I was a pretty young lighting designer having to stand up for my work and advocate for my department and deliver with a demanding producer, all excellent, excellent experiences to have at that age. And so when I started designing for Vancouver opera or even just becoming a regular on the a house regional theater circuit, Mm -hmm. those theaters didn't phase me at all. So it was perfect. I think that there was a compromise for a while because I had to be in these places for these weeks and there was no wiggle room around that, you know, I certainly turned down work as a designer because of phantom for a while, but long in the long term, I think what I, what I gained was very, very valuable. So it's a shame that up and comers today don't have the opportunity for those experiences, you know? Absolutely. Um, I do have a question about tracking movers, <laughs> yeah. something I never did. Yeah. Because uh, why would I? And I had, by the time I'd gotten through here, live event was like, like crashing yeah. and burning. Yeah. Uh, and so this big show, I think I got, and then the NASDAQ tab, I got onto uh, the Last of the Mohicans musical. There was going to be oh, a yeah. Last of the Mohicans musical, and yeah. then the NASDAQ crashed, and the show like <laughs> right. never happened. Like it never happened. <laughs> like all the investors mm. lost their shirts on it before it even got into production. So how did you just describe that kind of process? How did you, well, uh, you know, the, the show came in. So in, in, in that day, uh, unlike today where, you know, you can run one lighting board to, to control everything with it, with the, you know, the EOS family. Um, in those <coughs> days, Verilites were still, you still had to lease the rig from Verilite in Dallas and it came with the Verilite artisan console. There was no 
options about what console you used. It was all programmed on the Artisan and triggered, ultimately triggered by the lighting desk. But, um, you know... Um, through, through MIDI or was it through uh, You know, like? probably time code. It was probably, it might have been Simpty. Yeah. Although I, don't quote me on that. Sure. Um, that wasn't part of, you know, I, I arrived when we... I wasn't there from the very beginning and it was a show that had trans like the set for that production of sunset came from LA. Um, the funny thing about that production was that it was never built to tour. So it took 16 weeks to set up and open in at the center for uh, in the, at the theater in North York. Um, I think when it went to Vancouver, it took longer to load in than it took to, than the run actually lasted. Um, the job as the as the moving lights assistant really was about we weren't tracking in the sense of um, uh, cue to cue writing down what it was doing. It was more about creating maps of the focus, and and um, and in in those time in those days, you know, you'd have a focus palette or whatever you called it, and it would have a name or a number, and it, that would refer to the scene. And so there might be. 20 or 30 movers that were all, you know, positioned and tuned for the scene and then updated to uh, a preset that represented the whole, the whole scene, which isn't, is not how I would do it today. I I tend to be a little bit more, um, uh, have a finer resolution on, on that sort of thing so that, you know, I can use something, I can pull something out of one scene and use it in another scene very easily. It was, I don't know. It was so long ago and it was my first exposure to a rig like that. Mm -hmm. The lights were constantly breaking down. Um, Any show that you have to have a tech that's responsible for just repairing the very lights. Yeah. You couldn't jump from Q1 to Q100. They needed to kind of go through their pathway or they'd end up, you know, going not being very precise in where they landed. Now all the data was was uh, captured in the unit. Like the unit had its own moves recorded in, each, in the body or something, right? I don't know about that. Was, oh, I, yeah. was a long time I pulled ago. I pulled that bind I'm a bit of a pack rat and I had an assistant recently who was curious about the early days of movers and I was showing her it's a heavy it's a thick yes. binder, you know. Um it was just so it was a very interesting experience to see an experienced programmer um make that gear at a time when you know looking back it was pretty primitive i mean it wasn't the very beginning of the life of the verilite but you know we were only 10 years in or something like that at that time and they were s- still trying to figure out how to make them work for theater mm-hmm. versus concerts and um every year there was a new model it seemed that came out although some things never change, I guess. Yeah. So it was interesting. Awesome. And it was great to work with Vivian on that, who's, you know, Vivian Leone is one of America's great associate lighting designers. And uh, she really looked out for me and kind of took care of me on that. And um, it was it was great to have that experience. And lots of um, Broadway uh, production, uh, cordon, you know, production types came up to work to get the show up as well. It really felt like uh, working on a on a different level. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's something we don't do up here. Like associates up here are basically to fill in for people when they've got too much work or something, as opposed to an actual like this is the way it works. With yeah, the designer and the associate yeah. carrying out the. Well, you know, Andy Bridge did show up for a little while on Sunset in Toronto. Mm-hmm. 
I'm sure he was, you know, there was some contractual obligation for him to be there for some period of time. He showed up and, and I remember thinking, he just, he, he walked into the room with this air about him. And I thought, this is a rock star lighting designer. Like I didn't know such a thing existed, but he had this fine leather jacket and he took us all to this beautiful steakhouse for dinner. And I thought, this guy probably flew here on a private plane, you know? <laughs> I mean, probably not, but I, I was pretty, I was pretty impressed. <laughs> awesome. Let's get back to like Canadian theater. Yeah. Even though that's former, like that was a, that's a time that's, and place that's that's never a chapter. Be repeated, right? Yeah. Uh, when did you first do your first solo design? My first solo design? Yeah. Oh, it would have been pretty soon after f- coming out of school. Um, you know, I did. Uh, as happens to many of us, we come out of school with um, a bunch of classmates, and when we're not working for somebody else, we make our own work. And so there was a a, a collective called Full House Theater, and we did. Um, under Milkwood at the Vancouver Fringe one year, and we did uh, this crazy play, this Czech play called the Insect Play mm-hmm. at the Fringe, and then um, Christopher Gaze, who directed Under Milkwood, came to the group and said, uh, "Folks, I think it's time for the Vancouver Shakespeare Festival to be reborn, mm-hmm. and I have this idea uh, about doing that. And how would you like to work with me?" to bring Shakespeare in Vanier Park back to life again. And so our, the third Full House Theatre production was Bard on the Beach, uh, year one, 1990, I think. I think it was 1990. That's tr- and they're still going today. They're, the Beach, right? they're going strong today. Um, myself and uh, another one of my classmates from university, we'd been working for the Vancouver Children's Festival as a summer job for a few years. And so we were... Uh, familiar with what was required to put those saddle shaped tents up in, in the park. And we understood, you know, um, the permit process and needing to get power delivered to the site and um, booking the Porta Johns and all of that stuff. And so um, the full house theater was really able to help um, Christopher who had this vision for um, Bart on the beach um, was able to really help him deliver a lot of the practicalities in that first year. But then it became clear that it wasn't a project that was going to work as a co-op, you know, and Christopher was clearly the lead man on that. Mm -hmm. And, and we were also all starting to drift in different directions as well. Um, I think that the fresh out of school collective has a pretty short lifespan. It sort of serves a purpose, Mm -hmm. Um, at least in our case, it had a short lifespan. Um, but you know, some of those people are still my good, good friends. And, uh, I still, you know, I still work with lots of them, um, whether it's actors or, um, designers or whatnot. Uh, Mara Gottler was our costume designer in our first year. And at the time she was, she'd been our teacher at UBC teaching costumes and she designed costumes for the first year of Bard on the Beach. And she's still their costume designer to this day. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, some of the actors that were in that, in that production, in that company, I still work with in, in varying capacities, uh, here, the, here and there. So, um, so, but I, I did start working pretty, pretty much right away. Um, there wasn't a lot of dough in it. You know, I was lucky that I had the job at Doug Welch and I, 
and I had the odd opera with VOA and then I had uh, Phantom came on stream as well. And so between those three semi-regular things, I was able to then, it kind of took the pressure in a way, it took the pressure off the earliest days of my solo career. I didn't actually have to make a living as a lighting designer. Um, um, but, uh, you know, so... Um, and I was impatient as well. You know, I was like, why won't the playhouse hire me? You know, two years out of school. And now of course I look back and I'm sort of embarrassed. I know full well why they didn't hire me. Um, but you know, I was working for the playhouse before too long anyways. Like when I look back now, it's, I think, oh, that was pretty quick actually. You know, like, um, I probably started working for them around 94, 95. So four or five years out of five or six years out of school Mm -hmm. to be working for the regional, the big regional theater in your hometown. That's, that's all right. Um, and then the playhouse was tapped into, you know, there's a lot of co-producing coming on stream then. And so, um, through the playhouse, um, I started, I did some stuff with theater Calgary in the early days. So some, that was one of my first out of town jobs was yeah. theater Calgary, the Belfry, which is on the, a smaller size theater in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of work for them in the early years and uh, then sort of took a hiatus from them for a while. Michael Shimada has been running that company the last 10 or so years. And, uh, I've started working for them again. Yeah. Um, and then Vancouver started doing co-pros with, um, MTC, Can Stage, um, and then the Overcoat came along in '97. Was when the Overcoat premiered in Vancouver, and that, you know, y- you ask about seminal productions or important productions, and that's that. That's one of, if not the big big one for me, yeah. for sure. Uh, just before we get to that, yeah, I, I did want to say that we used to. Um, it's not unusual for us to 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 cry copros because of the work that it would kind of suck up or the yeah. kind of the notion that, uh, uh, you know, why can't we just, why do we have to do all these shows with other people? But by the same po- token, by the same, by the same token, there's, uh, it gives, especially new designers, opportunities to get out of their hometown. And it now do, it does MTC, do that. You're at Kent Stage, you're at yeah. Theater Calgary, like, and people get to know you. Yeah. What a great opportunity. There's, there's a couple of good things about that. For me, I, I became really good at, moving shows mm-hmm. that's i i think you know in terms of my skill set that's one of my great skills is being able to take a show from point a to point b and and understand um and and to have and practice um a really strong process of of making those moves mm-hmm. you know um uh it it was good insofar as it it gives you a chance to revisit a show and how often do you do a great show and then it disappears never to be seen or heard from again. And so the chance to, it it actually led me to starting what I call my next time list. Mm -hmm. So it's on the, I do it on the the first page inside my binder Mm -hmm. and is is something occurs to me during the process and go, Oh, that's too hard to fix now. Or um, we're too far down, down the road to go backwards. But if I had a chance to do this again, I would, change this color to that or add this, uh, add this concept or, you know, that sort of thing. And so I just keep a next time list on all of my shows because you never know what's going to come back. But the co-pros did have the downside was, you know, if Vancouver Playhouse was doing 
uh, tons of money and Theater Calgary was doing tons of money that could have been two different lighting designers getting a full paycheck. And instead it was one lighting designer as a co-pro, it's one lighting designer getting one and a half or one and two thirds paychecks. There is a sense of economy. I think that there's the perception that co-pros save the producer's money, but, and I think they probably can. I mean, I'm not a producer. I don't get to see the books, but my guess is that there's been some co-pros, some epic co-pros that have really cost more money than just doing two standalone productions. And some of that comes down to planning and preparation and how well the company, the originating company, or, you know, the, the partnership of companies, um, gets together. I mean, you know, there's that, there's sort of a famous infamous three or four way co-production that Kevin Lamott did of, um, Jekyll and Hyde. Oh yes. And, um, and I did, and my, I did a three way co-production of red. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, um, it wasn't notorious in the way that Jekyll and Hyde was notorious. Uh, but we did, um, can stage Vancouver Citadel, you know, and, um, I did a lot of those for a while. Was that, uh, that was with Mizan, right? Jim Mizan did the yeah. Red and Troy. It was yeah. Beautiful production. It was beautiful. Yeah, I saw yeah. That. yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, that's terrific. Now, the, um, we, let's talk about anything before Overcoat that we, that, that was important because it sounds like no, that seems Overcoat like a good... was the, the first big kind of, um, high point. Yeah. For me. Well, let's talk about that because yeah. we spoke, I spoke to Ken McDonald, uh, on the, what would now be the previous podcast. This will come out uh, before <laughs> that. Um, uh, about the overcoat and about yeah. its kind of genesis and its history and its kind of life. Yeah. But how, uh, coming in from the, you would work with Morris before, or was that the first? I'd worked with him, I'd worked with him two or three times before that. Mm-hmm. Um, the overcoat was the, the, the result of a series of three movement works that Morris and Wendy Gorling created at Studio 58. They did a show called Scenes from a Courtroom, and they did a show called Nocturne. And then they did one called uh, The Company. And I lit The Company for them at Studio 58. And uh, and that was a really successful uh, production and was really intriguing in terms of its, its use of physical storytelling uh, and music, um, but not physical storytelling in a pantomime or in a dance sense. It really was its own thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Glynis Lation was running the Playhouse at the time, and she, I, I suspect, had seen the company, and so she commissioned Morris and Wendy to create a work, and they used a bunch of current Studio 58 students as cast, so they really bumped the size of the cast up. It was over 20, I think, which, you know, if you had to pay them all an equity salary, you probably wouldn't do it. But I think probably six of them were students, or had just finished school, one or the other. Uh, it premiered in 97, and it was, I mean, I, I may be repeating what Ken has already said about the show. It was the music of Shostakovich telling the story of The Overcoat, which was by the Russian novelist uh, Nikolai Gogol. Um, and it, it was really, um, it, it was a turning point for me in a few different ways. Um, I, I hung more lights on that show than I had any business doing hanging. And I learned a really important lesson, which is 
you know, um, you can hang more lights than you can focus in the time that's allotted. And, um, if you do that and you're, you run out of time on your focus, you still have to finish the focus. So where's that time going to come from levels? And I paid a dear price for that. And I remember Leslie McMillan sitting, she was the production manager at the place sitting behind me, you know, tapping her watch practically. It felt like she was tapping her watch behind me going, come on, Alan. And I remember her nudging Morris and going, get him to go faster. (laughs) And, um, but I'd sort of done it to myself, you know, I think I probably hung 330, 350 units. It's a big rig, but it was, it was a show that we just didn't quite know what it was going to turn into. It was a, it was a a premiere of a very ambitious work Mm -hmm. on a, on a big stage, you know, on an A house stage. And, um, and the piece continued to evolve in the way that shows do during, during tech and during previews. I was able to pare it down a lot when we, you know, we, we did the show many, many more times after that, but, um, overcoat was the first time I won an award for my lighting. I won the Jesse award in Vancouver. We all won Jesse awards for the overcoat. And, um, and then in, in the year 2000, uh, the CBC commissioned, um, you know, they had that series called Opening Night. Yeah. And the CBC decided they wanted to make a movie of The Overcoat. Yeah. And so Morris made his first feature-length film. Yeah. And, it, we, you know, the temptation is just to set a bunch of cameras up in, in the theater and shoot it from a bunch of different angles and then really make the movie in the editing room. Mm-hmm. And Morris wasn't interested in doing that. And he had a great cinematographer working with him, a guy named Bob Ashman, who went on to, you know, do lots of uh, great Canadian television as a, as a DP, but as a director as well. And Morris learned how to make film on the job. And, um, the CBC radio orchestra was, uh, recorded, uh, you know, a played through soundtrack of the work, uh, which was just, um, staggering. And then in 2000, later in 2000, I'm sort of getting the sequence a bit wrong, maybe, but um, it was decided that there was enough appetite for the show in Canada that we did a little mini tour. So it came back in Vancouver, and then we played, in some order, Winnipeg, um, Ottawa, and Toronto. And it was very successful. And then, uh, I guess the feeling was that it had probably run its course, um, and it, that was the time I think when Marty Bragg was running can stage and then a f- maybe 2003 or something like that, the, you know, the property, if you think of the show as a property, it shifted over into the can, into can stage hands oh, yeah. and they decided that they were going to, uh, run it more with an eye to getting it to New York. Right. And I believe the season, so then we presented, it was presented as part of the World Stage Festival in Toronto. And there were all of these producers that were booked to come and see it. And then the SARS outbreak happened and everybody stayed away in droves. It went on to do some international dates as well that Ken probably talked about as well. And there was, you know, we were playing the Barbican Center in London and um, there was talk about it transferring to the the national theatre 
and then they got a shitty review in one of the papers yes. and the meetings, the meetings the next day were just canceled, you know, <laughs> yeah, like the, the meetings that. for the day after the opening. Yeah. It's, uh, it sounded, <clears throat> yeah, it sounded terrible. Like everything was going great. The audiences loved it. And then the they did, there were lineups around the block to see the show, but you know, we were hearing things like mm. American producers are interested, but they think it might be too dark. And so alarm bells start to go off. Right. And then, right. you know, they're like, well, American producers are interested, but they think they, they need a star. So maybe Mikhail Baryshnikov could play the man. And then I heard, we think the show needs follow spots. And I was like, that's not the show. Yeah. Like the overcoat was a dark show. Yeah. I don't mean a visually dark show. No. Um, it was, um, it was, um, it had a dark essence, you know? Yeah. And so I just think it didn't appeal to a commercial producer. Um, but you know, uh, I'm sure Ken told you that Morris has written an opera, an opera version of it, which we're all going to get back together for next year, opening in Toronto and then going to Vancouver. That's very exciting. It's very exciting. Absolutely. I'm not quite sure. Only Morris, Morris Panich, who, um, took Moby Dick, mm-hmm. arguably the greatest work of American fiction, and turned it into a play without words right. at Stratford. Yeah. Only Morris would then take his masterwork, The Overcoat, a play without words, and turn it into an opera. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I mean, it's it's so audacious, yeah. and I'm so intrigued, and I, I don't know anything, I hardly know anything about what we're doing yet, so um, it's still a ways away. Yeah. But, but The Overcoat... So Overcoat represented a bit of a high point for me in terms of my working process. Like I learned that I needed to be way more economical. I sort of set a rule for myself coming out of that show. And it it may seem really arbitrary or artificial, but what I do is I look on any show today, uh, I look at the, the schedule and go, how many hours do I have to focus? Okay, 12 hours to focus. On average... Sometimes I can go faster. Sometimes it goes slower. 20 lamps an hour is reasonable. Yeah, five minutes a lamp, right? So if I've got 12 hours to focus, I can hang no more than 240 units, period, end of story. Because if you do, you're going to get in trouble. You have the potential to get in trouble. And I've used that that formula very religiously since then. Now, obviously, some shows need more than 20 lamps an hour. But it means that if I hang more than I am comfortable being able to manage. I know that I have to, I need to up my game. I go in and I hammer, you know? So that was a pretty important um, lesson to learn, you know? And that show gave me some profile, some national profile as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the year that I was nominated for the Dora, for the overcoat, Mm -hmm. the Lion King won. Right, right. (laughs) Because for some unknown reason, we're up against the Lion King. Yeah, with a thousand uh, conventionals in it. Yeah. Bastards. (laughs) Um, So when did you get to the Shaw? I came to the Shaw in 96 as an assistant. Ah, yes. So what happened was, as you know, uh, because you assisted here, uh, there used to be this sort of routine of a two-year cycle. You'd come in as the junior assistant, uh, you'd work in the courthouse of the George and then your second year back, you'd assist in the festival and then you'd get the boot. Yeah. And so it was sort of a, you know, you're in, you do the job and you go away. Yeah. Um, there was a breakdown in that cycle going into the season of 96. 
And at the time, Rob Thompson was the director of lighting design. And I'd assisted Rob a number of times. I mean, that was one of the, sorry, just to circle back to Vancouver Opera. Yeah. That's where I met Shalom, yeah. Michael Whitfield, Harry Frayner, Rob Thompson, yeah. Rob Bosworth, Guy Samard. Um, there's probably one or two others. But that was also a really seminal experience for me, was coming into contact with all of those lighting designers. Yeah. So in 96, the Shaw needed someone who could drop into the second year assistance role. Oh, yeah. And I was, I was really starting to phase out of being an assistant yeah. by then. Yeah. But I got the call and, and I thought, well, you know, it, it's, it's probably, it's not a lifetime appointment, you know, it's, I'm probably going to be in and out. Um, and, but it can't hurt. And, and I hadn't worked at Stratford at that point. Um, and so I took the job because they needed a ringer. They needed someone with some good assisting chop who could just drop into the festival yeah. and just do the job. Yeah. Um, and then the year, the next year, I didn't come back mm -hmm. because they were still operating under the same yes. um, pattern of hiring. Yeah, that was my first year. 97? 97, yeah. Right. And Phil Sagan, Sagan was on the festival, yeah. Right. So I didn't come back in 97. Mm -hmm. And then Kevin became the director of lighting. Mm -hmm. And he did the hiring for the season, or he did the, he was involved in the hiring for 98. Mm -hmm. So my first year as a designer was 98. Right. And I worked, excuse me. Yeah. I did the lighting for the ladies, not for burning mm -hmm. for Christopher Newton. Mm -hmm. So that was my first show at the festival in the courthouse. Um, and I've been here with a few exceptions. I've been here almost every year yeah. since then, which was more than 20 years ago now. Yeah. Uh, no, not quite 20 years. Um, and some, many seasons I've done two shows, a few seasons I've done one and a couple seasons I've done three shows, but you know, I live in Vancouver and it's not like I can go home on weekends. It's not like I can, it's not like there's a break in the schedule where I can get home to see, um, my wife or, um, get back to the rest of my life. So th that, that's, you know, I've, I've had a very, um, very fulfilling uh, experience working at the Shaw, yeah. but it's it's come with some challenges as far as working away from home. Yeah. Like that first year as an assistant, I was here for seventeen weeks, yeah. and I didn't get home. Yeah. Um, I think my girlfriend, who's now my wife, did come out for a visit partway through, and that's really how we've managed it since then. But I'm often here for two or three months, mm -hmm. and she would Michelle would come out for a week or two visit in the middle of it. It's, you know, the itinerant life of the lighting designer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, any favorite uh, shows while at Shaw over the last 20 years? Um, that you really yeah. Detective story was a pretty special show yeah. that was with Neil Monroe. Mm -hmm. Cameron Porteous designed the set yeah. and it was a very unusual design. It was very letterbox shaped. It was a low wide set. Yeah. That was one of those classic Shaw productions where it seemed like every company member had a part in that play. Nice. I mean, it was just a parade of actors. Yes. There must have been 30 characters in that play, and there was no doubling. Right. It was fantastic. Yeah. And Cameron was on this, had this idea, well, Cameron and Neil had this idea about bathing the stage in this mottled light. And this was still when we were hanging and using Pawnee projectors on the, on the rail. And so Cameron produced um, an image, um, 
uh, an abstract, a piece of abstract art by Jackson Pollock, a black and white thing. And we just bathed a stage in this, very high contrast, sharp edged. And it kind of, it became like a camouflage, a camouflage effect to the stage. Actors could move through it and you couldn't really see that actors were moving through it. And I've, I've re referenced that at other times with on other productions as a, um, as an idea, yeah. you know, we, we did a production, another show with Cameron and Christopher. We did, um, something for, uh, the COC. Um, oh man, my brain. Uh, I forget what it was called anyway. Um, similar idea. So it was an idea that we recycled again yeah. in a, in a new, in a new way, but detective story was very special. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've gone on to work, uh, first with Ken McDonald here. We did um, the Coronation Voyage was Ken's first show yeah, here. Yeah. I sort of had to twist his arm into taking the job. He's like, but Morris isn't doing it. It's like, it's okay. I'm doing it. Come and have fun. And then I think the next season, Morris did his first show here. He did Nothing Sacred on, at the festival. And so I've, I haven't done all of Morris's work here, but I've done a bunch of it. Um... I think that uh, I was very proud of Ragtime here. I was very proud of Sweeney Todd mm -hmm. as well. Um, I heard great things about Sweeney Todd when it was produced. It was a, it was a special it. production yeah. as well. Um, yeah, I think that those three for me, uh, the, the um, wow, my mind, I can't, th I'm having a hard time remembering the names of shows. I have, um, I have a list here. Anatole, um, the something, something of Anatole. Um, at the Shaw, the Amorous Adventures of Anatole. Oh, right. Which was a show. No, no, no. I'm getting it wrong. No. Hotel Peccadillo. Right. That's what I'm thinking of. Okay. We didn't do Anatole here. <laughs> Hotel Peccadillo was another Morris Panett show, yeah. and it was a very you know Ken McDonald's design was all very forced perspective and yes. crazy colors, and and that was a wild farce, but it was tremendously fun. Um, yeah, but you know, I I loved doing um, a wilderness uh, in in the courthouse. Um, I think Joe Ziegler directed a wilderness, um, doing you know that O'Neill play, um, Summer and Smoke with Neil, which I went on to to direct when I was back when I went back to school um, recently. I directed Summer and Smoke. I really tried to pick a play I hadn't lit, but it was pretty hard. <laughs> anyway, I think those are sort of off the cuff. Those may be my highlights here or my faves anyways. And you've also worked at Stratford. Yeah, less so. I, my first show at Stratford was in 2007. Yeah. I did Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. um, talk about jumping in the deep end of the pool, yeah. you know. But it was, it was a beautiful production. It was very successful. And I went on to do uh, maybe five years worth of work there. Um, I did... A few shows, um, mostly actually in in the festival, mm -hmm. um, uh, and um, again I did a couple more as Panitch productions. We did Moby Dick at the f in the studio, mm -hmm. one season, and then we did his his musical play um, called Wanderlust mm -hmm. at the Tom Patterson. That was my last show there. Mm -hmm. um, those were crazy years because I was also working at Shaw. Almost each of those seasons, I was also working at Shaw, and I was engaged in this insane commute up and down the 403. Um, 
and not living here. I was, you know, like I had three homes. I had my home in Vancouver, an apartment in Stratford and an apartment in Niagara-on-the-Lake and these mad early morning um, commutes to make one call or the other. It was exciting. It was an exciting time and it was really rewarding. And I, I was thrilled to have that opportunity to work at Stratford. Um, but it was also really stressful. I, oftentimes it was still in the winter months. And so you know, it's like, is there, did it snow overnight? And um, is the drive going to be horrible? And am I going to make it back in time? And it's a bit stressful. I remember one season doing a little night music with Morris here at the same time as, or virtually the same time as doing Moby Dick with Morris at Stratford. Right. And so I sort of had my director captive for, because we'd commute sometimes together. Right. And so Morris, who famously doesn't like to do meetings, right. you know, one day I was like, I'll give you a ride down to Niagara. And then I, I, I sort of feel like I tricked him into a two hour, <laughs> a two hour meeting without him knowing that's what I was doing. So, Yeah. Awesome. Uh, any other kind of significant shows you want to talk about before we take a break and come back and talk about process and stuff? Well, you know, I, I referred to Crystal Pite earlier, mm-hmm. and um, her work Emergence has gone on to some international acclaim, great international acclaim. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, the work that I did with Kim Collier on Tear the Curtain, which was sort of hailed as a a bit of a breakthrough production in terms of being a film, a, a really um, compelling, striking film theater hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't the first film theater hybrid, and it won't be the last. Mm-hmm. But it was a it was a very unique production, and and it went on to it had great success in Vancouver, and then uh, it played in can at can stage as well. Subsequently to that, I think for me, I, I look at. Uh, more so than the productions being highlights, I think of the collaborations as being the highlights. Yeah. And so, you know, I've done more than 20 shows with Morris over the years, and he's been my most frequent collaborator. Um, I feel really lucky to have worked with Kim Collier, Crystal Pite, uh, Neil Monroe here, um, Christopher Newton, uh, Jackie. Um, but, you know, that... that I don't mean to downplay all the other mm-hmm. incredible collaboration collaborators I've worked with. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that for me, one of the things I'm proud of is, is being able to continue to call myself a West coaster. And, yeah. and I've always lived in Vancouver since starting this, um, my, my working life, well, since university, there's been lots of temptation to relocate to Toronto. Certainly at times the temptation was greater than other times. But, you know, when you're from somewhere, that's where you want to be. And, you know, you you talk to Maritimers about being from the Maritimes or people from the prairies being from the prairies. And I'm a, I'm a Westerner and I'm a Vancouverite. And I we make a lot of sacrifices as it is working, having a career in this business. And I just didn't want to sacrifice... Uh, where I lived as well. And so I'm really proud that I've managed to make that work. You know, um, uh, I'm still married to the same person I've been married to for almost 20 years now. And um, now we don't have children. And 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 that was, um, you know, I, I look at, you know, I look at colleagues who over the years, have, you know, have faced real challenges with being away from home and family. And so I knew that this was going to be my life. And so, um, 
I happened to marry someone who didn't feel the need to have children. And so it worked out well for both of us, yeah. you know, but I'm, I'm pretty proud of, of that achievement as well. Um, being able to have this cross Canadian uh, profile and demand and yet continue to live where I want to live, which isn't the, maybe the most obvious place to live given the concentration of theater that you find in central Canada. Hi there. I'm interrupting briefly to ask you once again to support the title block on patreon.com. Click on the Patreon button in the show notes. This will bring you to my Patreon page where you can donate a small amount every episode. And I'm just asking you that you help out to cover the costs and help me to continue to capture the history of Canadian theater design. Go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate a couple of bucks an episode. It really helps. So let's talk about your, you've also, you're not only are you a set uh, lighting designer who's had great success, you also have been doing set design for the same amount of time. A lot of times we have set designers who also do lighting, but you seem to be a lighting designer who also does set. Is yeah. that correct? I would, I think that's a pretty fair uh, description of it. Um, when I came out of school, I really thought of myself as a lighting designer and that's what I pitched myself as. Um but very quickly, particularly with the co-ops and ad hoc companies and the, the really small stuff, very often companies were, they were looking to find someone who could do more than one discipline. And what I realized was that if I could offer my services in more than one discipline, it would make me more employable. I only wish I'd paid a little bit more attention at theater school to the set design side of the equation you know we drafted for a year or part of a year uh i did one set design as part of the summer stock company at ubc but uh i had the chance to start doing set design almost right away and i did a quite a bit and in almost every case i've also lit the show that I've done the set design for, I think with maybe only two or three exceptions to that. Um, and so th they were mostly for very small companies. Often I would also build the set and paint the set myself. Um, and then it kind of tapered off for a little bit, uh, which was fine because my profile as a lighting designer was, was growing and I was traveling a lot and that seemed to preclude doing a lot of set design. And then um, I had a chance, uh, I'm trying to think, Glynish Lation when she was running the Playhouse. Uh, with her there, she asked me to do set and lights for a few shows there. So I did a production of Copenhagen, a production of Stones in His Pockets. Um, and then Max Reimer took over at the Playhouse and he hired me to do, it was this funny production that Nehi Theatre Company in the UK was meant to come and put it was a, they'd done this show called Noel Coward's Brief Encounters I think that's what it was called and uh, it was based on the David Lean film Brief Encounters or Brief Encounter and Nehi was supposed to come to Vancouver and do the show but the show had um, after the deal had been done um, Nehi had their production had taken off and was going to the West End. Oh. So now the Playhouse was committed to doing their production, but none of them could come and do it. Right. So Max Reimer hired me to basically recreate the original set design 
from the knee-high production. Um, we had no drawings. We had no interaction with their team, no support. It was basically, here's an archival video and a script uh, and some photos of the props backstage right. from their production. And so it was really, that was a really interesting archaeological process, you know. Um, and so, which is kind of what remounting lighting for shows is as well, right? That sort of backwards engineering a show. Yeah. So I did those three big shows at the Playhouse. And I had one season where I think in one season I did a production of La Ronde, a production of the musical Little Mercy's First Murder, and a new play in Vancouver called Landscapes of the Dead. And they're all really different and very well received and kind of acclaimed productions. And I thought, here we go. My career as a set and lighting designer is, we're off. And then it was like radio silence, 10 years of radio silence. And then, so it's been on and off. It's been sporadic. Uh, 2016, 16 or 15, 16, uh, um, the arts club in Vancouver was doing Godspell. Right. Sarah Jean Hosey was directing. Yeah. She really wanted projections on the show. And the arts club was like, well, you can have three designers, but you need to pick what they do. <coughs> so there was a costume designer, obviously. There was a projection designer, obviously, because she wanted to do that, and a lighting designer. But that left the set design out in the cold. Right. And so Sean and I collaborated to co-set design Godspell for that production. And then... Sorry, which Sean? Sorry? Sean. Sean Newenhouse. Sean sorry, yeah. projection designer. Yeah. Uh, who lives in Vancouver as well. Right. But he's a, he's a big international, the Mets, uh, Broadway. And, and then I've just finished a production uh, last month of A Little Night Music for... Um, for Patrick Street Productions in Vancouver, Set and Lights. And right now I'm working, while I'm doing Dracula here at the Shaw, I've also got in the pipeline uh, set lights and projection for the first time for a new play being done out in White Rock, BC, a play called Sea of Stories, which is was commissioned as part of a Canada 150 um, venture in the, in the town, in the uh, city of White Rock. And so I've got that happening uh, in the mix. And then my night music is coming back in the fall in, in, uh, in another suburb in Vancouver. So uh, I'm back on again. It's, it's a very kind of ebbs and flows. And um, my, I would say my, my strength as a set designer, I'm more of an architectural set designer than I am a f finish and detail. Like you wouldn't hire me to do a period yeah. interior. But if you need something that's kind of... Um, maybe more architectural or more abstract or imagistic or a set design that lends itself to be, you know, to the lighting design. Like that's kind of the natural marriage for me. And certainly the kinds of sets that I create are, um, lend themselves to the lighting design. So, um, yeah, so it's been on and off, but it's been a great adjunct to the lighting design and is certainly brought in some income and has been very stimulating as well, just in terms of, you know, being a creative person and, and enjoying putting my brain into that other place. It's, it's been great. And I'm excited about tackling the projection design for the show this summer as well, back home. That'll be, you know, I, I finally thought, you know, I've, I've done this, I've, as a lighting designer, I've worked with and supported projection design for all these years. So I, you know, I know some of the stuff. I don't know the 
I, I don't know some of the technical stuff, but I think from a, from a creative standpoint, I think that uh, I'm in a position to, to sink my teeth into it. Yeah. Certainly in the future, if, if teaching is ever to come about for me, I really felt like uh, I needed to have that in my repertoire as well. And it's not like I'm going to suddenly do 20 projection designs in a row probably, but I, I think that I, you know, anybody who's actually done something that they're teaching is a much better teacher than someone who's only ever read about it in a book, you know, or observed it from a distance. So, and, you know, I would say that since going back to school, which you're probably going to ask me about shortly, yeah. uh, I feel more emboldened to uh, tackle things that I might have just shied away from in the past. Um, I feel more courageous creatively now than I've ever felt before in terms of tackling big challenges or doing things that are scary or doing new things. So, yeah. So a couple of times uh, you've mentioned your work at the Vancouver Playhouse. Uh, I, it's, uh, it, tell me what happened <laughs> because it's, I'll do my best. Yeah. Because you're, I mean, as an out, like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think part of the challenge and part of what has upset it, upset the, the local scene is that we, we don't really know what happened. And it's... Just before you begin, could yeah. you just give us a bit of a timeline? Uh, things have- yeah, I guess the Playhouse closed. Oh, Lord. I'm just guessing here. I want to say four years ago. Because yeah. yeah. I went back to school three, maybe five years now. Yeah. Anyway, so the Playhouse was one of the original Canadian regional theaters. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the Playhouse Theatre Company was a entity, and they performed in a theatre called the Vancouver Playhouse. Mm-hmm. Very confusing. Yeah. Um, and the Vancouver Playhouse is uh, still is a, a venue owned and uh, managed uh, and staffed by the city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And so uh, any uh, tenant of that theatre space is is a, a temporary resident. The Vancouver Playhouse Theatre Company was sort of the resident theatre company, and they did a season of between four to seven shows, sort of over the years, you know, they sort of push me, pull you in and out a little bit, um, more or fewer productions. Um, the sh- the, the theatre company basically shut down uh, suddenly about five years ago with very little advanced warning very little fanfare. It was suddenly announced that the Vancouver Playhouse was closing. And um, while there was a great outcry amongst the theater community, particularly the people who had been employed by that theater, there wasn't much outcry from the community. And so I'm not sure what that tells you, except I think it, it must relate to where the theater company had got to in terms of they they were under some financial pressures they had a you know they were they had a deficit and um, the the numbers at the box office weren't great um, the one one aspect of the story is that the 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 piece of property that the Playhouse Theater Company occupied 
as uh, for rehearsal space and scene shop and costume shop and all of their administrative offices uh, was on a piece of land on False Creek South, which was slated to become the Olympic Village uh, for the 2010 Olympics. And so a developer uh, came out of the came along and they were going to turn this piece of property into a high rise. Uh, and then a deal was negotiated between, um, and my apologies to anybody who knows more about this story uh, that I'm screwing it up. Um, a developer came along and a deal was struck between the Playhouse Theatre Company and the developer that they would commit the ground floor of this new high rise to become the new shiny new home of the Vancouver Playhouse Theatre Company. And then the economic downturn of 2008 happened and that developer put that project on hold. So the Playhouse Theatre Company had vacated that that property and moved to another nearby property that used to be the Watson Glove Factory, about four blocks away. But it was a pricey piece of land, and they were paying real rent. Like, they were paying corp- commercial rent for a space. There was no subsidized... Like there, My understanding is there was little subsidization of what they were paying to occupy that temporary space. And then when the development deal went on hold because of the... Uh, of the economic downturn of 2008, um, the new home that they were supposed to move into as soon as the Olympics were done was on hold indefinitely. And so, and in in the meantime, they were hemorrhaging Mm -hmm. money paying commercial rent in this space. And so just to sort of sum it up, my understanding is that that happening put a lot of financial pressure on the company. Yeah. They they went to the city of Vancouver looking for some kind of relief or um, operational uh, grant that they weren't receiving or a deferment of what they owed or I don't know, yeah. something. Yeah. And my understanding is that it wasn't granted. Right. And I'm sure there was lots of backroom machinations going on to try to not fold the company. Um, I'm not quite sure how you get to a theater company one week saying we might be closing soon to one week later closing. Uh, So optically it looked terrible. The board of directors came under a lot of criticism from outside Mm -hmm. by people who, you know, no, I don't really know what really happened. And I know that, uh, Max Reimer had a reputation for being a theater saver. Mm-hmm. You know, he saved Theater Aquarius yeah. and he um, saved mm, Huron County Playhouse, I think. Yeah. Like that was his reputation yeah. was he was a fixer. Yeah. He was a guy that you brought in when your company was in financial trouble yeah. and he could broker the deals between all of the s- stakeholders to ensure the survival of the company. Yeah. So Vancouver Playhouse closed. And so they were not, and they were a big employer. They, they had their own scene shop. I mean, Can Stage closed their scene shop ages ago. Playhouse built a lot of costumes, built, not only built scenery for the Playhouse productions, but that shop got rented out to lots of other users. Bart and the Beach used their wardrobe. Like it was a real hub. And, um, and they paid the best rates in town. Now, Something that we haven't talked about is the spectrum of pay across the country and the, the the divide that is the Rocky Mountains. And I would say, without going into it in great detail, I would say that historically, 
if you're working in BC, you're probably making 30% less than uh, that company's counterpart in Calgary or whatever. And so the ecosystem was already kind of fragile and that we're already making less money by working in that place. Mm -hmm. And what's happened is, and but Vancouver Playhouse really did functional. I mean, you can argue with their programming choices. You can argue with, they changed their mandate at one point and said, we're only doing, you know, modern plays. We're not doing classics or whatever. You can argue with all of those choices. Mm -hmm. But in the end, um, I, I do believe they, they were functioning as a regional theater. They were uh, a site of lots of cross-pollination of artists coming in and going out. The work that was created there was going other places. There was a regionality about what, they, what happened in that theater company. And um, with the closure of the company, th there is now no longer a regional theater in Vancouver. It's not like the Arts Club, which... Is a is has historically been a much more successful organization than the Playhouse in terms of bums and seats and the bottom line. Um, the Arts Club, to my impression, didn't they didn't change their mo. They didn't go. We are now we now carry the mantle of being Vancouver's regional theater. So there is no regional theater in Vancouver. The Arts Club largely hires local. They don't co-produce. Well, that's not true. They do some. They do a little bit of co-producing, but it's still within the region, yeah. you know? Um, very few directors, almost all the directors are local. Mm -hmm. I would say virtually all of the designers are local. Mm -hmm. And with few exceptions, all of their actors, performers are local. Yeah. So they're not functioning in that way in terms of being um, a crossroads. Yeah. Um, you know, they do lots of new work and blah, blah, blah. So there's lots of good stuff that's happening at the Arts Club. Mm -hmm. But um, personally speaking, I took a big hit, you know, like I was doing one or two shows a season for them, but making better than I was earning at any other theater in Vancouver. And so um, the fact that there was no outcry, you know, there's virtually no outcry. There was some artists going, please save our theater, you know, but there was no public outcry. There was some public kind of going, what the hell's going on at the Playhouse? But there was no public outcry going, we demand to have this theater um, functional because it's an important, vibrant part of our community. Yeah. That never happened. Yeah. And so it, it makes me scratch my head a little bit about what's happening out there, you know. And from what we earn on down, the ecosystem is a little still a bit broken out there, you know. There's tons of companies in Vancouver, but you can't make a living working for 95% of them because they're doing one-offs and they're, you know, they're paying minimum, minimal, minimal fees. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's a bit strange out there. Yeah. yeah. And in spite of that, I still live there. Because yes. <laughs> it's a beautiful place to live. All right, just before we move on to uh, process and uh, your MFA, I just wanted to touch on the 2010 Paralympic Winter Games opening mm. ceremonies because you were this fall spot director. Yeah. And I wanted to just talk about what that what was that like? Yeah, it's a huge. I mean, it's big. It's yeah. televised. Just yeah. like a whole bunch of moving parts. <clears throat> um, um, how did you get hired? I mean, it was in Vancouver, yep. but uh, like, what was your sure. experience? Well, the lighting director uh, for the Paralympic opening ceremonies was a van local Vancouver lighting designer named Rob Sondergaard. And uh, his firm uh, was hired by the by the producer of the Paralympic opening ceremonies to provide the lighting design and coordination for um, 
for that event, we inherited the rig uh, from the main games um, opening ceremonies right. or clo- their, from their closing ceremonies. Um, I think that uh, we stripped the rig from a thousand movers down to 500 movers, I think yeah. for the Paralympics. Um, uh, but you know, his, so, uh, I had done some previous work for Rob and his company, Electric Aura, um, doing, um, uh, basically being involved in lighting, um, for some events, uh, around town. So, you know, like, um, uh, you know, um, corporate stuff or special events in strange locations or events in hotel ballrooms and, and that kind of thing. And uh, Rob is really good at pulling a, a team of specialists together. And um, and he knew, and I'd previously called spots for a not as ambitious uh, 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 special event mm-hmm. for that for that company, mm-hmm. and it had gone really well. And uh, it was a sixteen spot installation, mm-hmm. and uh, basically we were in. I think we were in the venue at BC Place for, I want to say it was a couple weeks, mm-hmm. maybe it was ten days, but basically it was you know a few days of um, turning the rig around for the for the new event, and then um, starting to rehearse with the uh, with performers. And because at that time BC Place was uh, this was before the big renovation that happened uh, to that to that um, location where they ripped the translucent inflatable dome off and and so it was a venue that only went dark uh, when it got oh. dark at night so it meant that um, there was some work we could do during the daytime yeah. and but there was a lot of work that you could only do at nighttime and so um, they're they're working swing shifts so that you, they get. Uh, a programming team to come in and work the night shift. And then we'd all come in in the morning and we would do a bunch of uh, sort of daytime rehearsals. Mm -hmm. And then um, we do actual run throughs in the evening once the rig was working. And uh, we were, we'd, we'd do the rehearsals at the time that the broadcast would actually happen. Uh, Rob was sort of the lighting. He was the lighting director for the project. There was also, um, maybe he would have, Maybe he was a lighting designer for the project, and then there was a lighting director who worked for him who sat in the TV truck. And so in one ear, I had the TV truck going, you know, more light, more light, or that's too bright or whatever. And in the other ear, I would have the lighting designer um, feeding me. Anyway, but it was an interesting project, you know, managing 16 spots is, that's kind of an adventure. And then there's also, um, I had to create my own calling script. You know, the, the script was, there was a script, but it was for the speech parts, not for the, you know, the, the, the interior of any one performance. And there were lots, there was lots of cueing within each performance. And so I had to devise my own calling script. And, um, uh, it was, it was a really interesting, challenging, um, satisfying kind of step, one giant step to the left, you know? Uh, they're fun jobs, those. The scale is, is really fun. And, you know, running, I mean, I wasn't running a lamp, but I might as well have been running lamp. There's sort of that, the you know, the, the adrenaline flows when you're, when you're contributing in a, in, a, in a live fashion to a show that's coming off, that's being broadcast around the world. Yeah. You know, stakes were pretty good and high. Yes. Um, but uh, we had lots of rehearsals and, um, and I would spend, I'd spend hours in the daytime practicing the call, practicing the standbys, you know, without anybody on calm, just practicing. 
uh, it was it was good fun. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. So let's move to the uh, the big question I have for you. Yeah. In uh, Bonnie Beecher's interview, I claimed that you told me you had designed ninety percent of the design by the time you got the set design. <laughs> For the show. And I'm here to uh, retract that. Right. Yes, of course. <laughs> Who knows if it was true? That's what my memory was. But yeah, tell me about, I mean, that's a good way into how you start the process. Yeah. And tell me about your relation to Well, I think, design. I mean, I'm sure I said something like that. Um, 90% seems a little bit high. So maybe I today I'd agree with Bonnie that it maybe is closer to 50. But I think that maybe what I meant, to, what I was meaning was that... Um, if you're, you know, as a designer, um, as the lighting designer, you, you're coming in at the end of the, toward the end of the process. So there's a bunch of, I mean, not to say like there are some jobs that are highly collaborative from the very outset. So not every job is like this, but frequently you come in late in the game and you're handed a set of givens and those givens are what you have to, uh, work with and around. So you know, I think when I say, oh yeah, 50% of the design or 90% of the design, I think what I'm, what I'm referring to is if you're paying attention, if you're really understanding the, the, the set design, um, it will tell you, um, it will tell you what it needs in terms of, you know, I think Bonnie made a comment about, uh, the first time she did a ballet and the, the choreographer said, or maybe it was an opera and said, there's not going to be any walls. And Bonnie was like, but how am I going to do side light? You know? And, um, but really, you know, what's, if you're, if you're paying attention and have your, you know, your thinking cap on and are responding to what you're being given to work with, that that's telling you something like there's something bigger about if someone comes to the table with a set where there's walls like that, that pushes the lighting in a certain direction. And so I think that you need, the job is to be open to, to reading those cues and to following those cues in a certain direction rather than uh, resisting those cues or feeling like you need to push back against, you know, like if the set is a bunch of windows I think that your job might be to shoot a bunch of light through those windows. It's just a thought. Um, so I think that that's really what I was, what I was commenting on. But, you know, I, I, like Kevin said in his interview with you, he's, you know, we, we're a bit chameleon-like, I think. Or at least I think the best lighting designers are chameleon-like insofar as I try not to bring any one particular style to the table. I try to allow the the style of the other designs the 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 vision if, if you want to call it that of the director or their thoughts about where they want to take the production i really try to let that guide me and if we're doing a show that's you know hard-edged and snappy counts and um um you know shafts of light in the air then that's the show we're doing mm-hmm. but if we're doing a show that's you know, soft edges and, and smooth fades and where the light is, uh, a bit more, um, organic and amorphous, um, then that's what we're doing. And, and so I think the job is to really, um, pay attention, pay close attention to, uh, what the play gives you, but also what your 
other what the other designers give you and what the director brings to the table. And that's not to say that there's not tons of room for me to bring my own stuff to bear. I mean, I had a we had a very exciting meeting yesterday around Dracula, which is a show I'm doing here at the Shaw right now. And um, you know, the the mood in the room was um, you know, um if it's a good idea, it doesn't matter where it comes from. And so, you know, I was able to roll, so sort of roll out some ideas uh, to Cam Davis, who's doing projections, and um, Michael Gianfrancesco was able to roll some ideas out to me. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's when it's at its best, is when we're all just open to uh, a free flow of ideas and inspirations, you know? Awesome. All right. So how about <clears throat> process otherwise? I mean, we talk, I've talked to a number of designers, and we. so I think that listeners of the podcast will probably know what the basic process of every lighting designer is now. Um, is there anything you, anything special or individual you do to, to get uh, inspired or like through research, or is it really, do you really just trying to keep it internal into the, in the production team? Um, do you have any sort of muses or, mm. um, you know, people whose work you, you draw from from other disciplines, uh, or is it really just contained within the production? I it's not. Uh, I would say it's not contained within the production necessarily at all. I really do try to um, open my. Um, I try to open my curiosity and my receptiveness to whatever comes up. You know, I, I try to. I love going through a script and circling or um, highlighting. I mean, there's the obvious stuff that you circle and highlight that you need to remember. Um, but I love the, the process of, of going through a play where I don't necessarily understand everything. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, uh, some research of either a word and its usage or an, uh, an idea or um, an image or a movement I love the the pathway that that research can lead you down because inevitably one idea leads to another, you know, there's, there's branches and it's sort of a, you know, branches of ideas that lead from, from one place to another. I, I do love that part of the process. It, sadly, it's, you know, trying to make a living in this business means that sometimes you're jamming work together a bit closer than you'd like. Yeah. Sadly, the one of the phases that really gets compromised most often is the research phase. Um, frequently, I'm lucky if I if I get more than a week of sort of gentle build up to the point where I actually have to start um, putting pen to paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if I have more time. I try to do more research. I do love it, and I love what one of the things I love about it is that it's uh, there's no pressure yeah. on the research phase. Yeah. There's so much pressure when you hit the theater. Yeah. Um, I would say I don't. I I would say that I don't have any particular muse in my in my work. Um, again, I think I just try to be in the moment and um, I don't want to bring something to the table that might define things in a way that um, 
don't make logical sense necessarily. Um, you know, in general, in my life, um, you know, uh, I really respond to music. Um, but it's hard to sort of draw straight lines between being inspired by a certain piece of music and what you're doing on the stage, except that I do think that in a way, um, my work, in a way, my work has almost become my way of making music now. And, and I don't, I, I don't make music anymore. You know, there was for, for years and years, I was involved in various forms of music performance and I haven't done it for a really long time. But I do think that that lighting for, not just for plays and, and dance, and, and not, not just for musicals, dance, and opera, but even for plays, there's a, there's a lot of, you can draw a lot of parallels between um, musical ideas and lighting ideas. Um, so I, I, I would say that I am conscious of the, the musicality of the work. And that, I guess, is very often reflected in timing. It's, that's my, you know, my favorite place in production is once you've got over that, uh, that huge mountain of, you know, pushing that big stone up that big long mountain of building those 400 cues for Sweeney Todd. Once you've got to the end of, you know, I love the, the process once you get to the end of, building that first wave of building cues of now having something to respond to. It's the, when there's nothing ahead of you, that is sort of the most terrifying part of the job. Um, and I know lighting designers and I never get this. They say, I love setting cues. It's my favorite part of the job. It's my, it's the hardest part of the job. It's the most stressful part of the job. It's the most heavy lifting. And I love a show that, where you have some time to actually now respond to what you've built before you have to walk away on opening night. And so a show that, you know, not only has a bunch of previews, but has a bunch more rehearsals where you can keep really start to finesse and fine tune. I love that part of the process for sure. As far as the creation phase of, of the job, this is a little bit more on the practical side, but I think it's an interest it's telling in, and reflects maybe my age. So when I started working, we were still hand drafting everything. Um, I started using uh, ALD Pro when I was at university, and then that subsequently became LightRight, uh, sort of our lighting database software. But, um, you know, when computer-aided drafting and design became a real thing for us to start using, um. I was a little bit late to that party, but not too late. I just, I just didn't want to have to fight with a computer to get a plot out the door. Um, but, uh, I started using, uh, Vectorworks. Um, and for the longest time, I still, I, I used the, the computer medium in a very two dimensional way. I, I'd have a plan and a section on the computer and I'd still bounce back and forth between plan and section the way that we do in order to figure out the shots and the angles and the beam sizes and all of that stuff. And then I would just use LightWrite as a repository for, for the design data. Um, I still, to this day, create, and this will be boring for the non-lighting designers, but I still use LightWrite as a place to work up the design. Yeah. I work up the whole design in LightWrite yeah. as a as a 
container for the design before I draw a single light on the computer. My feeling is that um, you can't just start putting lights on the page when you have your first idea. There's a good chance you're going to run out of lights or you're going to run out of space or you're going to find out there's not enough circuits in, in you know the front of house or on stage or whatever. And so uh, I put all I use Lightrite as a container for all of my ideas. And the, the ideas evolve and percolate along in that container. And until I figure out that all of my ideas, either all of my ideas can be done as I desire, and I figure out the instrumentation and the basically the distribution of the equipment. Um, and if I get to a place where I run out of lights, where I know I've got 60 lights, like I've just, I've just landed, I'm in the process of landing my preliminary for Dracula. And I've got about 65 conventional focusable units available to me in the kitty. It's what's left over after the other two shows. And um, I've got about 59 lights on my wish list. Right. So I'm like, oh, I can probably make that work, you know? But, you know, if it was all 19-degree Source 4s that were available right. and I wanted to do a bunch of big soft-edge stuff, right. then that's going to be a problem. Yeah, so I really don't start drafting until I've worked through all of those details. Mm -hmm. But I know lots of lighting designers who, um, they don't start in Lightrite. Mm -hmm. They start in Vectorworks. Yeah. And today with data exchange between Vectorworks and Lightrite, the fluidity of... of it, you're now basically dealing with one set of information as opposed to two separate sets of information, yeah. which is fantastic. But what's really exciting is in the last few years, and this started about a year and a half ago for me, is that I'm actually, my my process has accelerated since I've really embraced using the three-dimensional, the 3D tools in Vectorworks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it used to be that you would you'd think you know what kind of light you want to use for a job, but then you'd have to check it and you'd have to check every light. And sometimes it was easier than other times to check. But nowadays you can put the light in the drawing, in, in the model, it's because essentially a three-dimensional computer model, and you can focus the light in the model. You can place it in, you know, in space and you can tell it where to point. And then you can say, you know, show me the beam. And very, very quickly you can you can see whether those five straight in front lights are going to be wide enough to do the job yeah. from that position. Yeah. And then, you know, if you need to go to seven across or you need to go from 19s to 26s or whatever, mm -hmm. for some reason, and I actually haven't kind of figured it out yet. It's, it's accelerated the workflow. Yeah. Um, maybe it's because now it's, it's a single direction of workflow as opposed to it before it was sort of two branches of workflow and you're constantly going back and forth. Um, and my last three set designs have also been done 100% in a 3D computer model uh, form. And the construction drawings have been derived from the 3D computer model, not, as, not using CAD as a 2D drafting medium, yeah. using the 3D um, objects in space to generate, to generate the two-dimensional construction drawings. Yeah. So that's a really exciting development for me. Um, and I'm still sort of figuring out what it means. Um, um, but it's, that's, that's been a big, a big change in my, in my workflow, for sure. Of course, you know, it doesn't affect the director. Like, the, it's, 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 I've done some operas where we've actually used WYSIWYG to try to get 
it seems in Vancouver, I get hired to do these big gnarly operas. Like I did Sweeney Todd for them a couple of years ago. And I did a big uh, First Nations magic flute before that. And we WYSIWYGed on both of those jobs in a desire to get ahead of the time curve. And ultimately, while they, while that process of looking at lights focused in a 3D computer model was helpful insofar as understanding the physical parameters of the design, from a programming standpoint, it all went out the window when we hit the stage. And I think we were, I think we might have been under the misguided impression that we could make more meaningful decisions in a computer model that might get us ahead on queuing. Even doing focus palettes with the movers is contingent on the lights that are hung, being hung in the computer model are hung in the same orientation in the theater space and are patched the same way. And if they're not, you're screwed. They come up and they're pointing out in the audience instead of on the stage. Well, do you fix it in the patch? Okay, but now up is down and left is right. And so everything's asked backwards. So um, I think WYSIWYG has a, it's a great tool. And, you know, Kim Collier directed the Sweeney Todd we did, and she was able to, we hired, we hired Rob Sondergaard to be our wig programmer, lighting designer I referred to earlier, to be our wig guy for, um, for Sweeney Todd. And Kim was able to actually build and assess and animate all of the scenic moves in WYSIWYG. So all of a sudden there was this incredible freedom that she felt that it wasn't just an idea written down in words, that it was something she'd actually witnessed in space. So it's a great tool. I'm not there yet as far as it being a a good queuing tool for me. Maybe it needs more imagination or just more experience. I've done both. Uh, and I and I changed my process is very similar to yours where I start from light right, and because of the limitations of gear, I don't want to end up with needing six more nineteen degrees. <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure I've made those, and I want to make, I want to divest myself of those ideas early on so yeah. I don't get like. Well, and when you were way. drafting by hand, you didn't want to have to go and erase those six yeah, lights exactly. uh, four hours later. Yeah, yeah, and I remember. Uh, and so I, that's what I would do. I would do that and then the 2D production. And then I switched in WYSIWYG when I was working there to actually doing the visualization. And I only used the rendering portion mm-hmm. because it was pretty good. It, it would sort of match what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. But by the same token, I was really good at figuring out in my head what it was going to look like. I knew what it was going to look <laughs> right. like, right? So why did I need a rendering tool? And I take it to the director. The director would go, well, it doesn't yeah, mean anything well, to me. It doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? And, uh, and so that didn't solve any problems. Yeah. And then when I got rid of WYSIWYG because of I couldn't maintain a dongle outside of the working for the company, <laughs> yeah. I went back to the process and I just went, well, this is just the same end to the mean, like right. same means to the end. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't miss it. Yeah. Um, although the idea of hanging a light and like I got really used to doing that and going, oh, yes, because I trusted the photometrics, yeah. uh, which you can. Uh, because I did a lot, yeah. Making <laughs> films again, yeah. Very focused guy. Yeah. Uh, so you can, so that way you can, you don't have to go like section plan, section yeah. plan, yeah. drawing circles everywhere. You can just hang the things. Go, yeah. yes, five lights can be fine for that. Yeah. So I enjoyed that part, but by the same token, I know what thirty six degree does at the factory theater. But because you've worked there before, yeah. So that happens when you've when you get to visit a theater more than once. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. You know, you said a word 
a moment ago, you said visualize. And um, I think it's, I think it's worth touching on that for a second. Um, I think that there may be some lighting designers out there who, who, who are able to compose sort of mental pictures of what the stage is going to look like for them before they get there. Uh, but that's not, I don't think that's the case for me. I mean, maybe I'm selling myself short, but um, I feel like my, if we're talking about process that I rely a lot more on my, I think I rely a lot on my instinct. That is, I know when it feels I know when it feels like I've got the right balance in terms of lights on the stage, lights in the house, in terms of warm and cool. Like I know when it feels right. And and that was one of the things that took me a while to learn early on was to listen to that voice inside me going, um, you need another color of backlight or those lights are going to be too narrow. And you you ignore that voice at your own peril, you know? I I don't think I actually have fully composed mental pictures in my head of what the stage is going to look like before I get there. But there is certainly some process at work by which I'm weighing all of the needs at once. You know, um, on Dracula, I'm I'm trying to decide right now there's one scene, one very short scene that takes place downstage of a scrim. And I'm trying to decide if I need to tailor the inventory that's focused downstage of the scrim any more than it already is, or do I compromise something else? The scene's 30, you know, two minutes long. So I'm weighing that sort of in the scales, you know? Yeah. So I think I operate a lot on, on instinct when it comes to um, my decision-making yeah. and um, I don't know. I'd love to meet, I'd love to talk with somebody who make, who has those mental pictures in their head. I would say that uh, part, make, when you make a choice after, after several years of doing something, you sort of know what this concept's going to look like. I know mm -hmm. what I'm, you know, I know what a low balcony shot's going to yeah. be and how I'm going to use it. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, die back. I know what die backs and I do with a gobo. And like, I, you know, you can, you can tell what those kind of colors are going to do. Yeah. Uh, there's always a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Especially given that you've never shot it on that set. Sure. Or with that specific paint treatment. Yeah. Um, but, and some of it is trust. You have to sort of go. Yeah. I want to. I'm excited to find out what this is really going to look yeah, like, yeah. and I trust that you've got enough backups that if it doesn't look good, yeah. you can, you know, fix it. But yeah, I always. Yeah, maybe maybe that's one reason why I find the queuing process as stressful as I do is because I'm not coming in with a mental image of what of everything that I'm building. Oh, right, yeah. So if if it's about being in the moment, yeah. that's a lot of moments, yeah. right? Yeah. And. Um, and you have to be on and you have to work at speed because uh, you can't take four hours to build five cues. Mm -hmm. um, but you also want to be open to discovery and chance and being wrong about something and going, Oh, I hadn't thought about this, but that's a great 
thing to do in this moment. I don't know. I, I, I do feel like, um, just because I've been working as long as I have and have done as many shows as I have, I still feel like every show is, um, a, a new set of discoveries. And I try to ask myself, I try to ask, I try not to short, short change myself of asking the hard questions and interrogating everything equally from show to show. I try not to allow my familiarity or my comfort or with, you know, working with a collaborator over and over again, or going back to a theater for the 15th time. I try not to let that lull me into a sense of not needing to work as hard, you know, but I don't know, maybe I'm making it harder than it needs to be by living in the moment that way. I don't know. Maybe I might also speak to my laziness as well, because I, (laughs) one of the reasons that I left uh, was that because the creative portion, the really interesting portion was shrinking. It was getting very efficient. Mm. Like uh, for example, I worked at the globe theater, uh, really enjoyed working there, solved the problem of lighting the three, uh, the, the surround up until three feet from the audience. It's got some, it's not, quite symmetrical because these bombs are off center. Yeah. And so you solve all these problems that are specific to the space. And you go, oh, I, I can solve those problems. Now the rest of the bit is just making it, is responding to the play. Right. So, and you have to, I mean, part of the problem in lighting is you have to, yeah, there's a certain minimum of goals you have to reach for visibility and, right. and shaping and everything else. And so I kind of felt, but that was probably a detriment. Like if I didn't, if I was solving those problems fresh every time I might come up with different solutions and might mm-hmm. be better. So that's probably laziness on my part, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, but speaking of, uh, speaking of coming to things fresh and, and trying and, and, yeah. and, and trying to build on your naivety or trying to get yourself into a naive state, uh, you've gone back to school and become, I got your MFA in directing. Yeah. Which is something not a lot of designers do. Not, not a lot of people have switched from design to directing. We have spoken about it on the podcast a couple of times where it seems obvious that, you know, that move would be, why, why wouldn't more people do that? Yeah. But tell me about your process and why you f- that was a good idea. Like that, why you felt yeah. that was the way you wanted to go. Well, I've always felt like the designer and the director really were just sort of, you know, the opposite sides of the same coin. Like ultimately we're, we have the same goal in mind as, you know, as far as storytelling goes. Um, I knew that I wanted to do an MFA, you know, I wanted, you know, I turned 50 this year and, and life on the road is not for the faint of heart for sure. And, and I think it may be better suited to a younger designer, you know? So I wanted to do the MFA to give myself some more options going forward. And I just couldn't see going back to school to study lighting design in any of the MFA programs in Canada. I thought if I go back to do an MFA in lighting, I'm really just, really, I'm just going back to to get the the paper. And I thought if I'm going to go back to school and really put my, my designing life on hold for the better part of two years, I don't want to just be spinning my wheels, you know? So I asked myself, I sort of came to it gradually, but I, I, you know, I, I thought, well, what, what could I study that would be where I would learn a lot about being a designer? And what 
what could I do my MFA in or do graduate work in that would could transform my practice as a designer? And the answer was obvious. It was directing. Um, I'd never directed anything in my life. I'd never really, until, you know, I probably slowly worked up to actually going back to school over a period of, to study directing over four or five years. But I'd reached a point as a lighting designer where, uh, you know, when I was a young designer and I was very ambitious, um, I felt like my ambition was what propelled me into the career and sort of propelled me through um, those first 20 years. But I also had started to come to feel like I could actually call myself a master lighting designer. And I don't say that at all in the sense of I know it all or I'm the greatest or anything like that because I don't believe either of those things to be true. Um, But I felt like my practice as a lighting designer had reached a point where I could rely upon myself to always deliver strong, intelligent, passionate lighting. And, and I'd reached a bit of a glass ceiling working in Canada. I mean, I think that I've worked for almost all of the English language theaters, all, all of the English language regional theaters. I haven't worked at the Centaur. And while well, I've worked at the Neptune, I think there's probably a regional or two in the Maritimes where I haven't worked. Um, but, you know, I'd worked for the, for Vancouver Opera and the COC, and I'd been at Stratford and Shaw, and I'd done some international work. And, and so my ambition, my ambitions were kind of, um, my sense of ambition had, had shifted and that was no longer propelling me or sort of feeding my need to do the work. And so going back to school to do the MFA, I thought might be a really exciting, challenging, scary way of kind of rekindling, um, something that had started to to wane in my practice as a designer. And so, you know, I, I looked around as far as what schools I might want to go to. And the reality was that uh, I couldn't afford to go to a fancy school in the States. And my family life is at home in Vancouver. And so I didn't, really didn't, I wasn't in a position to uproot um, my wife and I, because she has her own career in, in, in Vancouver as a teacher at a university. And so I needed to pick a school that was... Um, that's pretty close to home so that the disruption of being away at school wouldn't be too intensely felt. Now that said, I was for all intents and purposes, full-time resident in Victoria because I did my MFA at UVic and I lived in student housing. Um, It was the best financial deal by far paid $600 a month. And it was five minutes from the library and five more minutes to the theater I wasn't in the gen pop, you know, I wasn't mixed in with all the first year uh, party animals. Um, I had a a furnished apartment on the ground floor of one of the residence buildings Mm -hmm. and all the undergrads were second floor and above. So I was a little bit on my own with, uh, you know, two or three other in an area with two or three other graduate students or uh, international students. And um, it was the best thing I've ever done. It, It, I mean, obviously I had so much to learn about, the process of directing. 
I've never been an actor. I mean, I was a bad high school actor and a bad first year university actor, but you know, I've never been a practicing actor. And so I needed to learn about how to communicate with actors. I needed to learn about how to uh, analyze a text from a new point of view. Um, uh, you know, I needed, I learned about holding auditions and I learned about working with a lighting designer. Um, it was, it was just total immersion and, but the, the really the brilliant thing about going back to school as a mature student is that you can afford to be fearless. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the problem for those 19 and 20 year old undergrads is that they haven't achieved much in their lives yet. And so what they're doing at university is all defining. And so the stakes they feel are, I think this is just my own analysis, but I think the stakes are very, very high for them because if I fail at this, I failed at this. Well, I've had almost 30 year career as a successful lighting designer. So my, I wasn't defined by my experience of going back to school. And so I, I just took the biggest risks and took the, you know, the, the longest steps and, um, put myself in the most, uh, challenging, uh, places that I could find through that process. And it was, it was fantastically invigorating. I learned a ton about, um, being a generous lighting designer by being a director, working with a less experienced lighting designer. Um, I learned what the costume designer goes through. I learned so much about what the actors go through and, you know, I've been in the room with some really brilliant directors, you know, just, you know, these great Canadian directors and lots of, you know, working at Stratford with some really terrific international directors as well. And so what I discovered was that, um, I had learned a bunch about being a director by osmosis, Mm -hmm. by being in the room with, Frank Galati or Gary Griffin or Morris Panich or Neil Monroe or whoever, you know, and there were moments where I was like, Oh, I'm having a Jackie moment here. Right. The way that I'm dealing with this moment, yeah. I think I might've picked that up from Michael Shimada yeah. or, Oh, that's what, that's how Morris gives that kind of note. Like I just found all of these past collaborators kind of flowing through me, yeah. which was really, really exciting. So I had no, I had no preconceptions about whether I would enjoy it or whether I'd have any aptitude for it at all. And I loved the process. I loved being in that place. And, um, I think I did a okay job of my thesis production. You know, it wasn't perfect. No one would expect it to be. Um, but what I'm, what I have found is that I want to put myself in that place again. And so now I'm in this interesting position of, needing to redefine myself as a theater artist and pitch myself to potential producers in a new way, you know, and while, you know, most, uh, most theaters in Canada might know of me as a lighting designer, they don't know of me as a set, as a, as a director. And so, um, the doors aren't automatically being thrown open for me to, you know, direct to Stratford next year. Yeah. Um, but, um, 
you know, one of the things about, about doing the degree in Victoria was that it meant that not many people from Vancouver saw the, saw the work. Mm -hmm. And so what I've been building towards is a first show in Vancouver mm -hmm. that I can invite people to come and see. And I've got that production coming up this fall. I'm directing a, um, a piece of device theater, a classroom project at Studio 58, the um, theater school in Vancouver at Langara College. And uh, so it's a chance um, to put that hat back on again. And um, I've done some assistant directing, um, both while I was at school, but also prior to school and since school. And that's been very satisfying. Uh, but ultimately, you know, I want to put the big boy pants on. And so I'm really excited about this opportunity coming my way. And who knows where it'll lead. I'd be very interested to see what, what it would be like to take on a project as the director and the lighting designer. Um, it's not like there's a shortage of, it's not like I need more to do, right. but, but you know, with my show at, at school, uh, so I directed summer and smoke for my thesis, the Williams play. Um, I pretty much knew what needed to be done to light the show, yeah. to, to light my vision of the show by the time it came time for the lighting designer to do her work. Mm -hmm. Um, she did a great job. It wasn't all what I would have done, but part of the part of the my responsibility on that production was not to just dictate how Alan Brody would light this show, but to learn how to be a supportive leader of a group of collaborators. You know, so it's very exciting. I don't know where it's going to take me. Um, I don't necessarily see myself. Um, putting lighting behind me and becoming a director. I mean, who knows what'll happen. Yeah. Um, but it is a bit like going back to the beginning of a career again. Yeah. And I'm not in a financial position to go back to where I was when I was 20 years old. Yeah. So, you know, there'll be some balance to be found there, yeah. but it's a pretty exciting development for me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and as someone who's got back to school as an adult, I completely understand. Yeah. It's a whole different focus. It's so different. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have any advice just as we close, uh, so we talked about being an undergrad and ha having it be not only career defining, but personally defining. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you, do you have any advice for people who are starting out to try and shuffle, like just to, to get rid of that weight and, and try new things? Like, yeah. do you think there's a better way of approaching it? Or is it just like, this is just the way it is and you have to get some life experience? Well, I think, that, I think that lots of undergrads are saddled with what they acquire in, in their programs as undergraduates, mm -hmm. which is this idea that they know everything, mm -hmm. you know? And there's some schools that are a little more guilty of that than other schools where you see continually see people coming from this program or that program who struggle to find their, to find their way or to find their place. I think you have to practice, practice, practice. You know, my, my advice to somebody coming out of school is I understand you have to pay the rent mm -hmm. and that might mean doing some hanging of hanging and focusing of lights or doing show calls. But if you want to be a designer, you need to put practicing as a designer as your number one priority. Right. And for a while, you're going to get paid nothing. And then for a while, you're going to get paid a little. And then for a while, you're not going to get paid what you deserve. Mm -hmm. And then for, like, you're never really going to make the big bucks. But um, it's a, you, you know, I would say, like in my career, it took 10 years to get to a point. I might have said that to you 
uh, I don't know if we were rolling then or not, but um, it was 10 years before I felt like I could reliably sort of pay the bills, you know? Um, and that 10 years, that might've been a hundred shows. That's a lot of practicing, you know? And those first 20 shows were God awful, but I had to get them out of my system. You know, I would also say, um, for lighting designers, do some assisting. Um, there's a really, you know, the continuum of, of like, when you look at the continuum in Canada, like you can draw these, these lines from, um, you know, Michael Whitfield to Rob Thompson, to Kevin Lamott, to me, to whoever assisted me. Like there's this, there's this stuff that you only learn by being a fly on the wall with a more experienced designer doing the work. And, um, it's a really important investment in, um, your learning and the learning only has just started at university. The learning will continue. Hopefully you will be a lifelong learner. Um, certainly you 20, 30 years in, you still don't want to take anything for granted. You're still learning about, uh, how to do the job and you're learning about yourself as a creative being and how you work and how you collaborate and, and it's also an evolution. So it's, it's constantly, uh, in flux. Um, but, um, practice, 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 do some assisting. Uh, those are my two big pieces of advice. Well, that's terrific. Thank you so much. That was designer come director Alan Brody speaking to me from the Shaw Festival in Toronto in May of 2017. Next time, another episode of The Bellows, and then on to a discussion with Andrea Lundy from the National Theatre School. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good, with a voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theatre design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at TheTitleBlockCA and on Facebook.com slash TheTitleBlockPodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to TheTitleBlock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you pine for the days that a Canadian producer would tour a full-scale musical to Hawaii and Alaska and points in between. Those days, I'm afraid, are over, friends. I'm Michael Cruz, and I will see you next time on The Title Block. And I've just taken a bite, which is awesome. I should have talked another 30 seconds. It's okay. Um, Sorry, I'll just stop. Yeah, that's okay.